Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. You've tuned into a Bully Pulpit special series for Symposium One, which the Hebrew Union College convened in New York City in November of 2016. Symposium One was organized around the theme of crafting Jewish life in a complex religious landscape. We at the Bully Pulpit had the privilege of interviewing some of the outstanding thinkers who participated in Symposium One, and we think you'll enjoy the conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome Alana Newhouse. Alana has contributed to the New York Times, Washington Post, the New York Magazine Slate, and others, but she is perhaps best known as the founder and editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine. Alana, thank you for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you, what was the need that you felt you wanted to serve or fill with creating Tablet? Well, the need that I think we wanted to fill when we started it has changed over time. Originally, the idea was that we wanted to create a really smart magazine that engaged with questions of Jewish identity, Jewish history, and Jewish culture for a particularly curious and engaged audience. I think we thought we were going to be a third or fourth read for most people. And this was going to be a very um, highly sophisticated audience, whether whatever their background. What happened then was that we started Tablet in 2009. In the ensuing years, both Jewish journalistic outlets and also general interest journalistic outlets have been very challenged. And it's not a secret that the journalism industry is in a real state of tumult and stress. And very many of those outlets found their resources cut and their ability to cover Jewish communities was compromised. So all of a sudden, Tablet was supposed to be this sort of small boutique, boutique, Yes, it's actually it's a very good term for it. Outlet ended up becoming an outlet for a much larger audience. Now, at this point across the world, who either don't have coverage of Jewish their own Jewish community that they see as reflective or who want to understand stuff about other Jewish communities and want to really be able to process what's going on globally how global and American politics and identity questions are affecting Jews around the world. I can imagine and see the shift you're speaking about with respect to their demand. Mm -hmm. Did that actually shape your editorial choices and content inclusion? It did, because, uh, just to take one example, I always wanted to cover politics, but the way that I wanted to cover politics and I thought we'd cover politics was in some very sort of 60,000 feet kind of bird's eye view, but now we ended up having to cover politics on the ground. We have to cover communities and, and the effect of political movements on those communities. And the example that I'll give is France in the last few years. We have a wonderful writer from France who we thought was going to write one nice piece for us about Jewish life in France. That piece turned into a five-part series, which then, after the various issues that happened in France, ended up becoming a much more regular feature because now, all of a sudden, both Jews inside of France and also Jews outside of France want to know, what does this mean? So that's just one example. And they're letting you know, meaning Tablet gets wind of the fact that there's a French readership. Yes. 
yes. I mean, Google controls everything about all of our lives now, so we all know. Um, That's very... We all know our readership. <laughs> so yeah, funny. I can tell you we have expat readers, mainly English speaking. But in France, actually, there's a lot of native French Jewish readers. But there's a nice expat readership, for example, in a place like Hong Kong. Yeah, I can imagine, right? Southeast Asia is all Jewishly yeah. Anglo. Yes, and also in Israel. Right, of course, lots of Anglos and Anglos. Right. So you started off online, very intrigued by your characterization of how you imagined tablet would be designed and taken, and, and, and we landed on that word boutique, which mm-hmm. implies a certain kind of sophistication of the readership, depth on the part of the journalism or comments or cultural mm-hmm, reporting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree with you in the sense that I receive it the way you intended to be received. Mm-hmm. And all the more reason why I was struck by your interview with your own podcast, Alava Shalom, mm-hmm. where you kicked off the print edition. Mm-hmm. In that podcast, uh, as I recall, your interviewers, your, your staff, your team, asked you why print, just mm-hmm. like I asked you why tablet at all. But it se- you seem to be saying that, you know, digital is rather fleeting it's it's got a you almost implied a certain superficiality and uh, ephemeral quality we all know it's ephemeral but 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 it didn't need not necessarily be shallow and certainly tablet isn't received that way but that you were reaching for something even deeper or more 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 durable somehow in the print both conceptually and physically but i i was frankly struck by that and i continue to be struck by, by your comments right now because i felt like all the qualities that you were trying to achieve in print had already been the direction of tablet online First of all, I'm I'm grateful. Um, it's one of those funny psychological tricks. That statement actually says more about you than it does about mm. tablet. Doesn't not it that always. I think not right. <laughs> not that I'm here to say that I think the tablet's digital presence is not sophisticated. It is, but the absorption of tab of a digital product says a lot about the person who's doing the absorbing. For example, the New York Times can put out the same very sophisticated article, but tons of people will receive it and distill it down to its dumbest meaning, right? The the form shapes the content's reception. Absolutely. And the platform is important here. And so the example that I can, you know, that I think is important now to understand about the Internet is one of the things that we're seeing um, as a consequence of the election, of last week's election, is a conversation in and outside of Facebook about Facebook's effect and influence on the election. And one of the things that actually has come out is that on Facebook, there's no way to differentiate between fake news sites, which were created in this particular instance largely by people who put out news that was seen as supportive of Donald Trump's campaign, and real news sites, quote unquote, whatever those are anymore even. The question is, if people can't distinguish anymore because they're getting everything through Facebook, and it says it's the, you know, the Chicago Morning News, then they just, right, they just assume it's a legitimate outlet. The internet doesn't have rules by which people can discern what are legitimate outlets and what aren't. I think increasingly, particularly younger generations of people, may not be able to discern. There's no rules for print hard copy either. There's only reputation and the settling in of time. Absolutely. That's true, except it, the, I think the barrier for entry is higher. Just because it's more expensive? Yes. 
certainly wasn't true in the heyday of uh, political newspapers when there were six different. Completely, uh, and and it's not. I mean, there was a, when you know I used to work at the Forward, and when the Yiddish Forward started, the Yiddish Forward started in 1897. There were 13 other daily Yiddish right, daily Yiddish newspapers, dailies, right? Right. So, I mean, think about. Right. It's true on some level that the digital marketplace is mimicking some of the features of the vibrant print market um, before it sort of settled into what we know of as American journalism. That said, I don't necessarily see it moving in the same direction. It might. It might. might not. You made an interesting comment, pregnant with irony, when you were um, charmingly reflecting on a naive beginning of tablet, imagining a, an internet, a free um, encounter of ideas. And the irony, I'm not sure what the intent of the irony was, but I received it opposite, in opposite fashion, meaning I thought that's exactly what happened. We get alt-right, we get Breitbart, which is the free encounter of ideas and like-minded. You use these words, and I was thinking exactly to our, uh, depending on your position, I suppose, sometimes frustration, which gets to the rules you were speaking about mm -hmm. and the lack thereof and the mm -hmm. costs of, I suppose, freedom. There's a real question here about journalism, right? Because Tablet's a journalistic outlet. And we talked a lot today about um, the Pew study of American Jews. Pew does lots of different studies. And they actually did a study of millennials and news consumption about a year and a half ago. To read it is to want to give yourself an aneurysm because you have tons of kids who literally have no idea how news gets produced. And they say things like, news is my right. It should be free because it's my right as a citizen to know what's going on in the world. <laughs> and you want to look at them and say, right, okay, who's paying the person who's standing in the middle of Syria to bring you the news? And they don't make that leap. Journalism, when done right, is an expensive proposition. Indeed. And the question then becomes, who's paying for it? And if no one is paying for it, the chances are it's not very good. And if someone is paying for it with a very active agenda, it's also important for you to understand what that is. So for my money, I feel that a future in which we return to some of the values of American journalism in its heyday is going to be essential to American democracy. And it's not just the cost structure structurally. It's also the cost of expertise. Yeah. There are certain professions, I think, that lend themselves to the expertise not being self-evident. Yeah. You go to a doctor, you get why you need an expert. Right. Um, there are other professions which you kind of think you That's could do it. That's a very good point, yeah. And certainly the digital revolution has promoted that attitude with respect to journalism. Absolutely. And so that's expensive too, but it's an invisible expense, and if you don't take the time or care to know, you, you, won't, you won't want to pay it. Right, that's true of journalism. Absolutely, it's a very, very good point. It's also true of any kind of media product. So on my way over here, a young woman buttonholed me and said, I love Tablet, but you know, when are you guys going to publish good fiction? Like, When are you going to publish fiction? I wish that there was fiction every week. And my answer to her was quite clear, which is when we have funding to pay fiction writers legitimate fees. Right for fiction. And, you know, her argument back to me, which was right, was, was I'm sure a lot of fiction writers would publish for nothing. But I don't want that. Right. I don't think that that's actually the economy that we should be creating.
Understood. And I think uh, other fields like music are similarly. Right. It's, it's really, it's really, in this case, as you said, the, the medium and the form really does matter. So uh, your point's well taken. Yeah. Before we return to the Bully Pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning for adults and teens, including online courses, live video interviews, and enhanced podcast episodes with text and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to our podcast. Shifting gears a bit, I happened, before preparing for this interview, but coincidentally, I happened to be in San Francisco, and I went to the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, and they had a Roman Vishniak show. Then, coincidentally, I read your 2010 article, A Closer Reading of Roman Vishniak. Perhaps because of your article, the show had already incorporated some of the more critical lens, forgive the pun, on Vishniak, so that um, my first encounter, aside from the book A Vanished World, which you cited and we all know, my first encounter had already been rather nuanced because thanks to the San Francisco Contemporary Jewish Museum. But your article still was really fertile and I enjoyed reading it and I wanted to ask you about it. In particular, I wanted to pick up on a quote. The subject, of course, was Vishniak, but the person, the the protagonist of your piece was a woman named Maya Benton. Mm -hmm. And she digs into Vishniak's past and his oeuvre and she finds all these inconsistencies and, and digs more. It's very, very interesting. One of the triggers, as presented in the article, that caused her to question the narrative as presented by Vishniak's A Vanished World was the following. She says, quote, I thought to myself, this is an odd publication, referring to A Vanished World. You would think that right after the Holocaust, they would choose images that readers could identify with. But these images are most other, close quote. And I remember reading that quote and thinking, no, I wouldn't think that. (laughs) I would actually expect what I got, which was the romanticized other that I didn't actually have to deal with in real life, but that I could fetishize and romanticize and put in my top drawer, or better yet, on my coffee Mm -hmm. table. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. You're right, and your impulse is the impulse that created a mythic circle around Vishniak and his work. Maya is very, very brilliant, and she has a very part of the reason why Jewish life is Shakespearean is because of characters like Maya, who essentially have their own ideas and go off and go to Harvard and decide that they're going to be photography mavens and then all of a sudden remember about this random book and decide to write about it in a paper. And what she ended up doing was upending an entire myth. An entire myth. That myth is not only about Vishniak, it's also about American Jews. We wanted to create an idea of the shtetl as poor and religious because you're right, we wanted to make them other because then their fate wasn't a threat. If what happened in World War II happened to a community that was very, very diverse and actually looked scarily like our own, then all of a sudden we have to reckon with what, where the threat came from. Now, I happen to think that there are a lot of differences that ha- that don't have to do with that, but I understand what the impulse was. The really interesting thing for me about the Vishniak 
piece was, you know, both Maya and I got enormous amounts of hate mail from all, from everyone, from religious Jews, from non-religious Jews, from Jews who identified themselves as uh, poor Jews to Jews who identified themselves, quote unquote, as rich Jews. I mean, you never know what, what right, any of what this stuff mean, means. Right, right. But the really interesting piece, you know, Maya and I did a bunch of events together, and the interesting piece was the, the people who come up to you who say that the Hasidic communities in America today are recreating the lost world of European Jewry. And you want to look at them and say, not really. Actually, if you really want to recreate... When they make that comment, they're granting them a modicum of, of, of legitimacy. They're actually conceding They're saying, they're, this is what it, what, used to, what European Jewish life... these are non-Orthodox people are looking at them and saying they're important because they do this service. Yes. There are also Orthodox Jews who say, this is why we live this way. Yes, no, I'm right? familiar with the claim. Right. So, and the idea is, is, no, actually, here's the way that you can recreate much of Polish Jewish life is if me and my Hasidic sister sat on my stoop on Shabbos morning and she was on her way to shul and I sat there with some socialist pamphlet and a cigarette. That's how we would recreate Polish Jewish life. It was politically and socioeconomically and religiously diverse and all the Jews lived together in many communities. Now obviously there are there were small towns that were much more homogenous particularly in the big cities, that that was not the case. And the proportions. I mean, a lot of people lived in Shtetlach, too, but a lot of people did in right. large uh, rates. So it's, uh, and um, so then the question is, is, why did American Jews need to do that? Right? Why did American Jews need to see European Jewry as very different from them? And I think in the post-Holocaust years, the answer is completely legitimate and understandable, which is, we didn't want their fate to be a threat to us. And that makes sense. Doesn't make it any more true, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a rather generous interpretation of why we wanted it that way. I think any one of us can understand why we would be skittish about confronting the prospect of real victimization and pain. I have a feeling it's a little bit cushier. It has to do with the convenience of bracketing and putting under a glass, or in this case in a book, a kind of pain that you can get points for without actually having to pay for. I, th I think that's implicit in a lot of American Jewish critique of our over-reliance on the Holocaust to build identity as well. I think that that's a really interesting argument to make about contemporary Jews. My sense is, is the Jews that lived in this country during and after World War II, even those who were incredibly lucky, you just saw basically millions of Jews murdered in the most ghastly way possible, you have to be terrified. It doesn't matter that you live here. I think you're right that maybe I'm being overly generous, but I also think it's okay to err on the side of generosity of those people, because I don't know what it would be like to live at a time when millions of Jews just got murdered and the entire world just watched it. And you have to wonder whether or not you're next. I appreciate the generous impulse, and I, I appreciate the, the, the gentle admonition as well. It's uh, not. I mean, no, no, no. I, it's, it's, but it's, well, right. it's well taken. It's well taken, truly. But when was it published? It wasn't published until the 70s. No, actually, the first Vishniak book was published right after the war. Oh, and the sorry. other thing I will say, though, that I think is that where you are, uh, I mean, you're on the money about contemporary Jewish life now. I think you're also onto something in the direct post-war decade and even during the war, which is part of the reason why Vishniak curated his work in the way that he did was because that's what was gonna make money. Right. You weren't gonna generate, you weren't gonna raise money 
running a bunch of pictures of rich Jews. Again, to be generous, it was to raise money, not to make money. Correct. Uh, so that's important. It was for the joint. Yes. And, and it was to raise money to help get Jews out. Right, right. So, you know, was it... I mean, a lie is a is a hard word to use about this, but was it a falsification of the picture of Eastern European Jewish life? It was. Was it a pious falsification is the question. Uh, you know, this is a genre in ancient literature that we have, the pseudepigrapha, and, and we know that there, there's a legitimacy in the course of human events over time that, that is recognized in certain pious falsifications and pious if the piety is deemed um, sincere and if it's and if it's not gratuitous. I think we would agree it's not gratuitous. Right. And certainly the consumers of the book were sincere. I also think that a lot of the consumers of the book were actually Holocaust survivors. I mean, Maya's well, that's something I wasn't, I wasn't accounting for. Right. And, and, and that's, again, uh, uh, duly noted. I mean, that's, but, and, but what's interesting is, is that then you have an American Jewish community where it's all mixed up, right? Right. And, it, you know, and you have a lot of American Jews who watch this thing happen. Tell me, though, can you take me into how this works in contemporary Jewish life, how you see it working? Well, first of all, it's not working anymore because <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's working. It's, it's, at some point, you know, I don't know if we want to pick this on the millennials because a lot, right. a lot of the discussion goes millennial, and it doesn't mean much to me, and I don't have a handle on it, although people claim to. Right. But clearly it's not working anymore. Right. I think, by the way, an important, important message is that in my experience as a Jewish scholar coming into my own in the 90s, mm-hmm. the most articulate impulses against the over-reliance on the Holocaust for the formation of Jewish identity came from the Orthodox, yeah. who were asking what one of the questioners asked you today, which was, where's God in this? Right. And whether or not that's a, a, a necessary question, it's a productive one in this context. Agreed. And, and, and I appreciated it. And then I see a generation basically younger than me. So I was born in 71, and anyone younger than I, I see, it just means something different. At the risk of stereotyping, I think there is this way in which all communities, in some ways, Jews emblematize a certain kind of pain because of the Holocaust and because of our story and because we milk it and because it's true and because of all of these things. In conversations, yeah, you you leverage it. You you leverage your pain, and it's particularly leverageable when you didn't actually experience the pain because you get a, you get something for nothing, and you see it in the claims of anti-Semitism. You know, um, you see it, it not all the time, of course. Frequently, it's very real. And I mean, you said it's all jumbled up, and you're dead right because mm-hmm. that's the truth. It, how do you how do you distill out when it's um, when it's someone uh, milking their mm-hmm. history or when it's real, and how and how do they know? And again, I will say this, and I, you know, this is not a comment on any specific person or institution, but there, there is a failure of Jewish leadership at kind of all the levels, which is to say, you know, communal levels are supposed to engage with people and actually reflect back what those people believe, and they're supposed to actually run challenging conversations there. Then they are supposed to sort of transmit that to a middle level. It's supposed to transmit it to a national level. And you're supposed to have a national leadership that on some, in some way, is able to articulate for people sort of how much and when and in what ways to use history and politics and culture and tradition. And we don't have a national Jewish leadership that I think functions in that way anymore if we ever did. If we ever did. I, I don't experience it as a leaderly issue. I experience it as, as a Jewish 
kid growing up in the 70s and 80s between the Six Day War and Lebanon mm -hmm. feeling like we had landed on that homeostasis of a productive, sincere, particularist claim on the world for our history and on ourselves that felt appropriate and felt appropriate largely because the rest of the world validated it. Uh -huh. uh, Vatican II figures into that with the Six Day War as well, so you figure mm -hmm. those are the bookends in my mind. Mm -hmm. And we had landed on that, and the, 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 that moment of Zionism co-validated it. Gentile America co-validated it. We dug it because it rocked. I mean, it was very convenient, and it wasn't insincere, and I'm not saying convenient in a dismissive way, but it happened to be convenient. It was comfortable, and it worked. That use of history had percolated up, and it made good coffee. So. The, the change in the story of Israel, the change in the relationship of uh, your Joe and Jane Jew vis-a-vis -vis liberalism, leftist American culture vis-a-vis -vis Zionism and created tensions that have begun to create fissures. That's my read. Uh, but here's the thing. I think that that's right. The thing for me that I would love is I would love to have a Jewish community again that found excitement in, in the contradictions that found in, in the fighting and in the controversies and in the contradictions and the ambivalences fertile soil for their own identity formation and who understood that nothing stays the same today as it was yesterday and part of the fun is being on the ride. That to me feels like what we don't have. We don't have an appreciation for that. And in fact, too many Jewish institutions want there to be an answer that is applicable to everyone. And the there isn't one. I agree. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think we lack that terribly. And I think it's not just that it's not fun. It's that there, there's productive and there's destructive tension. And we have crossed the line. And that's just a loss. So we have our work cut out for us. And certainly you and Tablet are doing your part for the fun and the good. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you for taking the time. Thank you really so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.